0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2130 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with an ongoing series of messages I had delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 12 on a 14week series from the Book of James titled "Wisdom is Faith in Action." I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, kids. We appreciate the object lesson. It's not only kids that need patience, is it? No. Now, I don't have the patience nor the skills to do what Paula does with her quilting, but there's probably things that I do that she wouldn't have the patience to. So each of us have our strengths in, in various areas, And that's what we want to talk about. If you remember back to Thanksgiving, seems like such a long time ago, doesn't it? In fact, Christmas almost seems like a long time ago now. If you remember back to Thanksgiving, we were in the book of James, and we ended the book of James in chapter 5. So we're going to continue the series today of the Proverbs of the New Testament, better known as the Letter of James. So before the Advent and our Christmas messages, It was about James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and it was warnings to the wealthy. And we learned that wealth should not be the primary source for thankfulness. And today we're going to pick up where we left off and continue on with three more lessons in James. And today we're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, and it's titled Patience and Suffering. It might not seem like a New Year's message, but I think something that all of us Need and have experienced in the last couple of years with everything seems like going on crazy with not only the pandemic, but within governments around the world, that we need a little bit more patience. So I think it's an appropriate message as we start this new year out about patience and suffering. And we're going to read James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, and it's on page 1885 of your Pew Bibles. If you want to turn there today and follow along. And I'd recommend keeping this passage open because I'll be referring back to it throughout the message. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All of us say all of all of you need to say all of you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, today we want to focus on suppressing that revenge reflex. Now, most of us are familiar with the gag reflex when you get something and it sort of starts to gag. Well, the revenge reflex is similar to that where we are hurt in some way and we want revenge. And it's almost like that gag reflex. It almost becomes something we can't control, but we need to, as believers in Christ, control that. We've all experienced the hurt and the mistreatment and misunderstanding. And the hurt can come in various forms, an intolerable work situation, domestic conflicts, overbearing parents, rebellious children, a treacherous friend, a petty parishioner, a gossipy neighbor. Our natural tendency is just to retaliate to that person and return evil for evil or going back to the Old Testament, an eye for an eye. We allow it to bottle up in us and to fester and to bubble up. It would be like this bottle of Diet Coke. Now, we don't drink much Coke in our house, so we had to go out and buy a two-liter bottle for this today, and I drank a little bit yesterday. It was awful good. But it's like that. When we bottle up and fester, we start to boil inside. We start to fume. And if I would take this lid off right now, (laughs) Lucille and Oscar at least would get a shower of Diet Coke, and that would be a mess. And that's what happens when we allow things to fester in us, to bubble up within us, when it finally releases, it spews out all over everything. But God has a better idea than either bottling it up or allowing it to burst out. James reveals an alternative for us today. He tells us what to do when we've been wrong, and not only what to do, how to do it. In verse 7, a simultaneous connects and contrasts to what the previous section that we had, First, James challenges his audience in verses 1 through 6. He says, you rich people. And then he changes in verse 7 to you brothers and sisters. If you'll remember that James addressed those who were oppressing the poor people, the wealthy people that had money and the means to oppress other people. In verses 1 through 6, he was exposing those wrongs and calling them to repentant humiliation in the light of the coming of God's judgment. But now in verse 7, he switches to a new audience that he's addressing, and he addresses the victims of the wealthy's ugliness, and he says, be patient then, my brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now James continues this theme of Christ's coming and judgment, which he will one day. It may be this year, it may be a 1,000 years, it may be 2,000 years, we don't know. We are in the end times, or so that end times will last until Jesus Christ returns to earth. While persecutors should fear Christ's coming, believers should endure it and anticipate it, even when we go through suffering. Don't miss that James shifted from his focus on the wealthy to his focus on his brothers and sisters in Christ. A man without Christ lives under frustration if he tries to bring patient into persecution or mistreatment or everyday afflictions. But we as believers have this supernatural ability. We have that indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us to endure under the miseries of life. Whether they're mild or extreme, how valuable is that patient? Whether it's a physical ailment like Ella's suffering with back pain or a headache this morning or Thelma with her earache or something that someone else is inflicting on us. How valuable is that patience to wait on the Lord? To appeal to be patient in verse 7 governs the rest of chapter 5 to the very end of James. It's a faith inspired response to a variety of circumstances that we as Christians must endure in this world from putting up with suffering, as we'll look at in verses 5 through 11, to a a temptation to flippancy, which we'll look at in verse 12 today to responding to sickness, which we'll look at next week. Or finally, to endure and help those who've gone astray, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks in verses 19 and 20. Finally, James gives us an, a simple answer to this question. I wanted to put this question up on the board today. How can I do right when I've been done wrong? Now, that might not be quite correct English, but I think you get the message. How can I do right when I've been done wrong? He answers the underlying question with four commands in our passage today. Two of these are positives that we need to embrace, and two of these are negatives which we need to avoid. And the first command is the title for today, and James tells us, to be patient. Be patient. How many of us are patient? Sort of hard, isn't it? Even when things are going well, where we want something else to happen. And I tend to be a future looking person, so I'm always wanting what's next, what's next, instead of just relaxing and resting in today. James. Illumines his first answer to this question and how we can respond right when we've been wronged. He says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Christians need to be patient. He also mentions patience in verse 8. And the word translated patience comes from the Greek markothemeo, and is referring to the ability to wait in tranquility. Can you just sit and be tranquil while you wait for something else to happen? In today's vernacular, James would say, when something unjust takes place, have a long fuse. You think about a fuse being long, or don't blow your top, or just chill, or my dad used to say, hang loose. He'd tell us that so many times. But let's face it, we would instead like to take our offenders by their throat and just throttle them. We don't like to be patient and tolerate other people at times. God has a better plan. He says to wait on him. But what does that mean? Well, in the ultimate sense, it means to wait on Christ's return. But what if it's another 2,000 years or 20,000 years? Do we wait patiently all that time? Because when Christ returns, he will mete out justice to those who are persecuted or have persecuted his people. Those who persecute the believers will not be tolerated forever. God will judge them. But patiently waiting on the Lord also has a here and now application. God has a way of working out his purpose and plans on, our everyday, on an everyday scale, just as he's going to work out his purpose and plan on a, scale, on a cosmic scale of eternity. So being patient in adverse circumstances means that we had de- deliberately allow God to handle the situation in his way and in his own time, neither of which we're very tolerant of. But like the farmer waiting for the harvest, he tells us to be patient. Since most of us do not farm for a living, we don't fully understand this passage, I don't think. And even so, we can water our crops almost all year round if we need to. So most of us don't grasp the meaning of when, he, when James says the autumn and spring rains here. For thousands of years, the farmers in the Holy Land have experienced the annual cycles of dry season and rainy season, over one after another. It's on a pretty regular basis. The dry season runs roughly from June through September and then some brief months in what we would consider the winter, and it leaves the soil somewhat parched. But the rainy season quenches the land during two different periods of the year, during October and November, which is the autumn rains and again in April and May which are the spring rains and the autumn rains would allow the seeds to germinate to start to germinate in the ground and then we'd have a period of dryness during the winter time but then the spring rains would come and that would allow them to flourish into a crop and ripen for the harvest before the summer drought season And while the land in those dry seasons or those five five months, the farmer eagerly waits and he watched the skies that God would send rains to produce that bountiful crop. By their very occupations, farmers have to learn to be patient. If they don't, they won't survive very long as a farmer. The Israelites understood that God was the sustainer and the provider who sent rains of blessings according to his promise in James or Genesis chapter 1. And the, on the other hand, the absence of sufficient rain at times was a sign of curses or disobedience under the Old Testament law. And this is mentioned in Deuteronomy in several places. When James likens the farmer's anticipation of the spring, it's an analogy, of the spring rains, it's an analogy of the believers waiting for Christ to return so that we can finally reach our full potential, our full blossoming, as it was, is the crops. The autumn rains are a sign of the symbol or analogy to us accepting Christ as our Savior. We're germinating now in the soil of this earth. But once those spring rains come, when Christ returns or we're taken to be with him, then we'll completely flourish as the crops would. And this is what James' analogy means in this passage. Our unbreakable New Covenant promise of salvation guarantees that one day God will rain His blessings on us through the promised glorious appearing of His Son. So the first command was to be patient. And as we move on in verse 8, our second command that James gives us today is to stand firm. So we're to be patient. Next, we're to stand firm. In the New Living Translation, it says to take courage. So stand firm, take courage. The second command relates on how we should respond when we've been wronged. It refers to an emotional fortitude and an inner disposition. The word stand firm is to and it means to establish or support something, to fix something firmly in place so that it's unmovable. And it reminded me of our church sign at the end of Chamberlain. We have sort of strapped it up against the pole for now because it fell down. But when the weather permits, we'll dig a hole and we'll put quickrete or concrete in it and we'll firmly plant that sign in that concrete so that it becomes immovable. And that's what Christ, James, through, through his passage here is meaning when he says to stand firm. Under stress or duress, our hearts can grow weary, but the Spirit of God can lighten our load. A heart that's weighed down under pressures of this world. And we're encouraged by Psalm chapter 55, verse 22. It says, give your burdens to the Lord and he will take care of you. He will will not permit the godly to slip and fall. And he also says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time. He will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to to God, for He cares about you. And practically speaking, this is where I find the 50-20 principle to be so helpful. And you might say, what's the 50-20 principle? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And it's the climatic passage of the life of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? His brother sold him into slavery. And then told their father, well, he's been killed. Here's his bloody robe. But Joseph's tragic life unfolded. And he was imprisoned in, in an Egyptian prison and accused of something he didn't do. But then he became the Egypt's prime minister. And years later, when those same brothers who had sold him down the river show up on the scene again, they were groveling and mercy for mercy once they found out who he was but how does Joseph respond? He responds with the 50-20 principle. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me out of the position, into this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now Joseph may have wanted to say, you scoundrels. But he says, God put me in this position to save the lives of not only you who did me wrong, but for all people. Unless we can see beyond the ones who have wronged us, we'll always want to retaliate. That's our natural or our carnal response, but it's not an appropriate response as believers. God works all things together for our own good, but according to his purpose in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. So we need a bigger picture perspective. If Joseph just saw his brothers and says, you did me wrong, you dirty rat, you done me wrong, he would have probably persecuted or killed them. But he said, no, God had a bigger perspective, a bigger picture. We don't need only 20-20 vision to see clearly. We see that, need that 50-20 vision of Genesis. That shift in perspective of our limited viewpoint to God's divine viewpoint helps to strengthen my heart as I've been wronged over the years at times. And trust me, it can do the same for each of you. So we've had our two positive commands now, to be patient and to stand firm. Now, in verses 9 and 10, he moves to two negative points that we should avoid. He says, don't grumble. How many of us are guilty of grumbling? The third answer, believers should respond to suffering when we are concerned, our actions that others do against us, our natural inclination is to grumble against them. But when your circumstances try your patience and you feel discouraged or frustrated by those external pressures, whether it's a pressure of a situation or a person, our subsequent tendency is to grumble. And here James refers to this phenomenon, much more insidious. You know, we might mumble to ourselves and be stew and to bubble up, but when we start grumbling against others, Peter, or James says, don't grumble. He warns us not to groan or grumble or complain one against another in verse 9. And isn't it odd that in families or businesses or even churches, when, it's, when we suffer hardship, the members of that community sometimes will internalize their aggressions and turn on each other. We turn on the leadership at times. Or we turn on our, ch- on our children or our employees. Or even sometimes we turn on our pets to vent our frustration. So we vent the frustration of those around us. On the outside, we might appear calm, like this Coke now appears calm to us. But amid suffering, it starts bubbling up again. And that infuses us. And we become angry. And once again, we start to fester. And when we do that, we spew it out on everyone around us. Don't grumble. Because when we grumble, it's like opening that bottle, the lid on that bottle of pop, that bottle of Coke, where it would spew out on everyone else. James has already dealt with the result of complaining spirit. In chapter 4, we covered that anyone who speaks or judges against a fellow Christians will be subject to the judgment of God in chapter four, verse twelve. And equally serious, when we start pointing our fingers or complaining about other people, we are subject to God's discipline. In verse nine, it says, "The judge is standing at the door; he sees what we do." And we know that we've, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. We are not going to suffer condemnation or hell because in Romans 8.1, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't allow our bitterness or our lousy behavior to go undisciplined. Just as a loving father is described in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, he disciplines his children because he loves them. And that's what God does to us when he disciplines us or allows us to go through discipline. Now, the ancient Hebrew prophets served as an example on how we're to suffer instead of grumbling. In verse 10, it says, prophets are often referred, refers to those prophetic offices like Daniel or Isaiah, but it also refers to a whole cast of Old Testament figures who spoke or acted on God's behalf. And next, James zooms in on a single character in this passage, and that's the excruciating suffering that Job endured. Though Job endured incomprehensible personal, financial, and physical losses, he refused to give in to that revenge reflex. He was demonstrating his faith through genuine patience. Finally, James reminds us that Job's suffering was temporary. Eventually, it gave way to abundant blessings and reflected the compassion and mercy of God, James chapter 5.11. And in the same way, those who patiently endure hardship today without grumbling or complaining can rely on God's promise and the ultimate reward and blessings. Now, that reward may come in our life now, and many times it does. Many times we don't take the time and be patient enough to recognize it. But if not now, our rewards will come when we're with Christ, whether it's when we go to be with Him or when He returns. The return of Christ... The judgment and rewards of God, the coming of his kingdom, are repeated themes throughout the book of James. So if you read through James in the future, look for those rewards of the coming of Christ throughout James. And then our last command from James today is don't swear. Now, Most of us swear, think about swearing as, as cussing, saying something we shouldn't say something inappropriate or what we used to consider at least bad words that we shouldn't say the final command is is related to how we should wrong or respond when we are wronged and it refers to a tendency to make rash decisions when we're under pressure or duress it, the the word square is omyo and it doesn't really refer to profanity here but it refers to making an oath or taking an oath to grasp onto something with our words in an oath To God, generally to God. And it's calling God into the circumstances and presenting Him with the validity of our arguments of why we're acting in the way we are. It's calling on to God, and we say things like, I swear to God I'm not lying, or before God I'll do this, or as God is my witness, I'll do this, or as country folk would say, I swear on a stack of Bibles, or I swear on my mama's grave. But I'm telling the truth. Instead of just saying what we need to say. Several points in this letter, James, it, several points in the, the book of James or the letter of James, he refers to back to the teachings of Christ. And one of those is this teaching on the oaths. If you'll remember back to last May or June when we taught about the Sermon on the Mount and the passage about the oaths. Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 and 37 through 37 says, But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by the earth, because the earth is God's footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is that great city of the king. And do not say, even by my head, because you don't have the ability to turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes I will, or no I won't. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. Now we don't really know what the historical situation was that James was referring to here to determine exactly why the Christians were taking oaths, but however, they were no, we know that both Jewish and Gentile people were persecuting the believers of that day. They lived under extreme religious, cultural and economic pressures and they were pressured to deny Christ in either words or deeds. And it may be that James' prohibition here about oath-taking is relating back to their confession of Christ or swearing allegiance to someone or something outside the church like the Roman Empire. In this context, the result of swearing would bring significant personal benefits to those who would make these oaths, such as maybe a lessening of suffering or persecution or hardship or trial, But the cost of it would be addressing or abandoning their commitment to the Savior. I see all this appeal to a simplicity of speech, to respond to circumstances with a simple yes or no, to answer succinctly and with authenticity. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, if you'll read through those, are full of exhortations to limit our talking, to limit our words. Because when we talk too much, we end up sinning just by the words that we say. And it comes to the challenging circumstance that we find within ourselves. And we'd be wise to avoid long explanations, detailed excuses, and especially pious spiritualizing. This kind of over-analysis leads to stumbling on our words. And when we stumble on our words, we end up saying things that we don't mean or can't commit to. We fall into the trap of making deals with God, promising all Him all sorts of unnecessary things that we don't have the ability to complete. If It will only lighten our load a little bit. And in the process, we think that we figured out what's causing our suffering and how we can weasel out of it by making these deals with other people or with God. Resist the temptation to over-spiritualize or over-analyze. Instead, stay quiet. Just sit back a little bit and let God work out His purpose in your life. Have patience. What's our application here as we wrap up? James has given us to his question, how can I do right when I've been done wrong? Be patient, stand firm, don't grumble, and don't swear or make unworthy oaths. He comes to us with these responses. In the light of the practical exhortation, let me suggest four easy-to-understand applications. First, don't focus on the situation or you will get angry. Instead, be patient. Yes, you will be wronged. That's a given. Yes, you could express your anger through through retaliation, but don't. Resist the revenge reflex. Let it go and be patient. Secondly, don't focus on yourself or you'll have self-pity. You'll have yourself a royal pity party. Woe is me. And you'll feel so sorry about yourself. Instead, stand firm. Be strong. Take courage. Remember the 50-20 principle of Genesis and pray this prayer. Lord, I see this person not as an enemy, but as a tool. They may see themselves as an enemy inflicting damage on me, but I know that you're bigger than that. Thank you for making me an object of your handiwork. Please make me a vehicle of your grace. So let God get you through the situation to accomplish his purpose. Be strong, stand firm. Third, don't focus on someone else to blame or you will grumble and complain. Instead, view others as a means that God is using to shape your own life. Just as the perpetrators of wrong, are tools of your spiritual growth. Those who God has placed over you or under you or around you can be tools to teach you patience. So don't redirect your wrath on those people around you. Don't put them down by complaining about them. Don't have a bitter spirit. Don't shift your blame on others. Instead, view others as a means that God uses to shape your inner person. And fourthly, don't focus on the present. So many people live in the past or are so focused on the present that they forget to see what's coming in the future. This is a challenging principle to apply, especially when you're in the middle of a crisis. So consider memorizing a few verses. And I've written down the references here for us today. So if you memorize these verses or read these verses when you're struggling, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later. Be patient. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce in us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that we cannot see. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold, So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world, when he restores his Eden as a global Eden for us to dwell in forever. So make this perspective that's found in these verses part of your worldview, changing your mindset. Now, I don't know what's in store for you or for me, in the following weeks or months or years, none of us could have predicted or expected what's happened in the last couple of years. So I don't know, you don't know, but God knows. And it may be a court summons that you receive unexpectedly that you don't deserve. It may be an unwarranted rebuke from an employer who treats you unkindly or even lays you off or fires you. It may be a neighbor who causes you prolonged grief over some triviality. It could be a spouse that would walk out on you. It could be a child who rebels in your family or a parent who treats you like garbage. But whatever comes, and we'll address health issues next week, but whatever comes, the practical advice from James can get you through. He says to be patient. Stand firm with courage. Don't hold a grudge and don't scheme in order to try to get out of what God has put you into. Patience through suffering. It's difficult for all of us. And that's why James addresses it in this final chapter of his letter. Next week, we'll explore our second letter on patience, and that's patience through prayer. And it will be dealing when we come under adverse situations when we're not well. And I encourage you to read James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18 for next week. And then the following week, we'll have our last message on James. It's been a long series, but hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And that'll be patience and correction when we have to suffer things because we're not living according to God's precepts. And that's James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. So these are good messages to start this year out with so that we'll start out with a year of patience. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your goodness to us. We thank you for your blessings of every day. We thank you for the suffering that we do go through, whether it's justified or unjustified. We thank you that we can look forward to the time where Christ will return in glorious rapture, where we will will finally be made whole, and we can see the purpose of the suffering that we go through today. Let us rejoice in this. We pray all this in Jesus precious name. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend. As I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day, and as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally.